Whether you are new in the tech industry or are a veteran developer, chances are that you've used a product that Jeff Atwood worked on. I'm talking about Stack Overflow and Discourse, of course. When it comes to building communities and fostering good conversations, Jeff took an unusual position, steer the conversation towards finding the best in people, argue ideas and not people, and ultimately contribute to a world that's just a bit better. How does it all work? Jeff elaborates in this episode. Enjoy the show. Jeff Atwood, I know that uh, you're someone that probably doesn't need that big of an introduction because folks listening to this are using Stack Overflow and uh, Discourse and they are well familiar with Coding Horror, but welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Jeff, tell us more about what you are uh, working on these days, because that's that's the very first intro question that I ask my guests. Sure. Well, I'm working on Discourse, which is an open source forum and teamwork software solution. So uh, it's kind of an alternative to chat systems at this point. Um, it's interesting how chat has become so dominant. It went from, gosh... We actually built a chat tool for Stack Overflow. Not everybody knows this, but there is actually a built-in chat system in Stack Overflow. And it's been interesting to, to trace the history of sort of chat systems as they relate to Q&A systems like Stack Overflow and chat systems as they relate to paragraph discussion and topic-based you know, systems like discourse and those relationships. But just chat has become so, so dominant, particularly with Discord. I had no idea that Discord would become so huge. Like, I think Facebook is probably freaking out about Discord now. Uh, that's how big they are. And uh, sort of this dominance of chat-based systems, which is great. But chat is, uh, you know, it's it's just, it's hard to push all your thoughts through chat. Sometimes you want, like, longer form discussions. So we're trying to thread that needle in kind of a different way with Discourse. Uh, so that's currently what I'm working on and what I'm thinking about mostly. I love that because one of the first starting point in my career were uh, two things. There's forums and there's Stack Overflow. And one of the great things that was associated with forums and uh, communities like Stack Overflow is that it's discoverable. And one of the things about chat that I find so jarring compared to those is the fact that I have to join this kind of almost like a gated community to be able to find the content and the discoverability is kind of, eh, it's kind of in between. Is that your take on chat as well? Like, what, what do you think about chat compared to things like, like, well, discourse, which is more in the open? We are actually working on a, a stepstone chat feature that's going to ship with discourse because we do want people to be able to brainstorm. Like chat is useful for brainstorming when you're, and for when you have really small, small groups of people, say you have just three people, well, it's difficult to sustain uh, a forum, if you will, you know, topics and paragraphs and conversations when there's only two or three people. Uh, and a chat room is kind of an appropriate, really simple way for two or three people to hash things out and uh, figure out what they want and move forward. So we want to kind of meet that halfway. And that's currently what I'm really excited about. And we actually... With Discourse, we just took a Series A investment of $20 million, and you know we're, we're sort of doubling down on the mission. Uh, we're still always going to be open source, but 
we want to be more of an end-to-end solution for people so they don't feel like they have to run you know, a chat system in parallel with discourse, although you can, I mean, you can in- integrate discourse with all kinds of tools. And I would never tell people that, you know, discourse is the only piece of software you should use, but it is a really solid building block, a conversational building block of, of storytelling ways of getting things done. You know, uh, we believe really deeply in that, that, you know, and you have a question about this later on about written communication and how important it is and blogging and, you know, discourse is a commitment to writing things down, you know, and chat is less so. I mean, chat is sort of (laughs) what's the minimum I can type and sort of move forward, which is okay, but doesn't really tell you the complete story. And also threading together long chat conversations is really, really painful, right? It's like, I was reading an article recently. Someone said that uh, they had a podcast or something, and the interviews always did uh, really poorly. <laughs> Sorry for anyone listening to this interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that part of the reason that is is because it's hard to thread conversational stuff back together into a narrative, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and that's why chat is, is difficult to use as an institutional memory. If your only institutional memory is chat, you're going to have a kind of bad time. <laughs> um, for example, you're going to have a lot of people coming into chat repeating the same questions over and over. <laughs> uh, that's a really common problem. So um, with this course, we're trying to you know, chart sort of a middle path there that gives you a, a, some of the chat tooling built in. So it's integrated. You don't have to go anywhere else unless you want to. Uh, but also a commitment to paragraph storytelling, writing things down. Uh, the narrative of why are we doing this, you know, and substantive, you know, back and forth discussions about what if we did it this way? What if we did it this way? You know, there's a lot of value in hashing things out and in, in writing in, in longer form paragraphs. So it's fascinating because you mentioned chat as a knowledge base and an organization that shall remain unnamed has tried that. And when they use something like Slack, as the knowledge base. And my first hunch was like, wow, that's a horrifying idea. Because I don't know, I've never thought of chat as something to be persistent. And I think that's the difference uh, discourse, right? You know, it's interesting, too, because when we launched Stack Overflow chat, which at the time was state of the art, in fact, you know, we could have actually launched as a product, like we could have built Slack, technically, uh, it, it was re- really quite good for its time. Um, I'm talking like 2010, 2011. Um, and, you know, we, we had all these features to say you were, uh, so Stack Overflow is a Q&A system. It's very, very strict, right? It's, it's, you have a question and there are answers. You're not supposed to have just random conversations in there. It's not a place for, you know, brainstorming. It's a place for specific questions that have specific answers that, you know, can help a lot of different people, not just you. That's sort of the big picture way uh, Stack Overflow works. Uh, And if you were in the comments and you kept commenting back and forth with someone, it would offer to send you to a chat room. In other words, it was sort of like get a room. It's like, okay, you're, you're basically chatting here. This isn't really what the comments are for. There's two levels in Stack Overflow. There's the question and the comments. Then there's the answers in the comments. And the comments really are like post-it notes that you put on something. They're not meant to be permanent. You're supposed to edit the question or edit the answer Wikipedia style to put the important information in the question or answer. So the comments in Stack Overflow are meant to be temporary. And 
if you do too much of them, we would offer to send you to chat so that you could hash things out in chat and then come back and then make substantive edits to the question or answer to improve it, right? That's always the end, the end goal. So it was always meant to be sort of the system that, that lives alongside Q&A, but also supports it, uh, but not something that you would seek out, you know, by yourself. You wouldn't really seek out, oh, I'm going to hang out and chat. And you could, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, prevented. And it was meant to be sort of a little bit more of a social space. Because right. there's also that pressure. You're not really meant to be social on Stack Overflow. Right. It's not, hey, let's hang out and talk about the coolest Java keywords, right? <laughs> um, it's more like, oh, I have this specific problem I'm facing. Help me figure it out. Um, you know, it's about practical problems you're actually facing. It's not meant to be a hangout area. So, you know, it was kind of an experiment. And we ended up looking through some of that in discourse. And I actually forgotten some of the stuff we had done <laughs> for some of the same reasons to uh, take some of the pressure off uh, the topics and put it back into chat where it lives a little more comfortably. So there's always been this sort of synergy between chat and Q&A and chat and forums. And discourse has a lot of real-time functionality too. Like you'll see when people are writing an answer, like say you're idling at the bottom of a topic, you'll see if five people are replying, you'll see, you know, five icons are replying to this topic right now. So we've become accustomed to this sort of real-time interface to what's going on. And, uh, you know, chat obviously carries that forward. And it's interesting that the dynamics are also different between instant conversation and something like discourse where when it's instant you have that little bit of a pressure i don't know personally i feel that when somebody's typing like you mentioned that he's like oh i have to either wait for them or type myself quicker so that i can get the answer out and that they can understand what i'm doing and you're kind of missing that context versus discourse or stack overflow where you have a little bit of a more like take your time flesh out your thoughts it's more like I said, Wikipedia style, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I, I kind of have, as much as I think Discord is actually a cool product, they, they've done a really good job with their product. And so did Slack, actually. I remember telling people Slack is going to be huge, you know, because it's so much better than the other chat tools. The chat tools were really quite terrible until Slack came along. It was the first really good one. And no one seemed to understand this. They were like, oh, we've got chat, we've got, you know... You know, I forget all the terrible options there were, but I was like, those are all terrible. I was like, Slack is actually the only good one. Uh, and, you know, Discord is also about sharing your screen. Yeah. That's a huge piece of it. And also video, right? And voice. So it's not just chat. It's also this, this sort of instant presence of sharing exactly what's going on, um, which I think does reflect sort of the next stage of, of the internet. You know, everything is always instantly connected. Everything is always like instant video of what's actually happening on your desktop. And, you know, even that clubhouse thing of, you know, instant audio, right? Oh, all, everybody can just, you know, instantly talk uh, over voice. Uh, whereas discourse is fairly committed to text, you know, like it is a written tool. You know, we're never going to get into audio. We're never going to get into video. But there is a lot of value in that brainstorming type of rapid back and forth chat. Or I only have two or three people. We got to even think about what topics we want to create, you know. So you can just go into the chat and just type a few words and have a relatively pleasant experience, you know. Like, hey, how's it going? You know, what are you thinking? What should we do with this? You know, 
versus where are your categories? Where are your topics? What are we talking about? You know, it's very structured. It's the same thing when you tell someone to blog. You know, it's easy to say, oh, you should blog, but you got to think about what am I writing about? You know, what paragraphs are going to go into that? It's a huge ask, you know, for a lot of people to write even one blog entry. Whereas just a quick chat or, you know, TikTok is a good example of this. TikTok um, and Twitter, you know, move the bar down from I got to write a whole blog entry to, oh, I just have to have 140 or now 280 characters of some interesting thought. I don't have to write 20 paragraphs about and research a topic. Right, right. <laughs> so the bar kept going down, which, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's, you know, it's just easier for more people to to do it when you take away some of that, you know, big objectives, like I got to have a topic and I got to write, you know, I got to do research. <laughs> um, but that being said, that's why a lot of people miss blogs, you know, right. written stuff and research is really often quite interesting. And I think you see a lot of newsletters now. I think newsletters are kind of carrying the weight that blogs were carrying. So now that we're talking about blogs, this is actually a very, I think it's an important topic to cover. And I mentioned it before the show, but I started reading Coding Core, your blog, back when I was, I want to say like middle school age. So dating myself here. Wow. But, uh, and I just remember being fascinated by the fact that you would put together, say, hey, I'm building a computer and here's all the things that the components that I'm going to be using. And here's how I made a decision on the case. And it was such a kind of a refreshing take. And it was the two blogs. It was Coding Core and it was uh, Hanselman. So mm -hmm. tell me more about what led you to start your blog? Because it's it's a staple of the modern, I want to say, like the tech culture. Uh, so tell me more about that. What was the origin behind it? Because I see that thread about written word and what you're describing. And the blog seems to be a foundation of it. Yeah, for sure. It does. And I think uh, for a blog to work, you just have, it's kind of like exercise. You have to have this commitment to show up and write about something at least once a day. I think, well, maybe not once a day, but you have to have a schedule and stick to it. And you get better by doing it. So that's kind of the first step is just commit to, I don't know, one blog entry a week, two blog entries a week, whatever you think you can actually realistically achieve. And there's, you know, so many really, really interesting things in the world to to look at and talk about. And when I started my blog, a lot of it was just me reading software development books and talking about all the interesting things that I read in the books, like Code Complete by Steve McConnell was a particular favorite. Uh, and a lot of that book wasn't about, you know, how to write badass algorithms. It was how to get along with other people. You know, it was about how humans are social animals and how programmers need a sense of, you know, belonging and togetherness and, you know, all the wants and needs you have as a person are the thing that matters versus the code. And it was so enlightening to realize that the code, as important as code is, wasn't really the thing. You know, the thing that you were really working on was these personal interactions between you and your coworkers. That and your boss, you know, um, and your, your your customers, right? That's what actually matters. So it was such an interesting book to deconstruct coding into a social activity, more so than something you do alone by yourself in a room with 
you know, with with the computer. Um, that era is long gone. I mean, can you imagine using a computer not connected to the internet? No. That how what what would you do with it? I mean, how would it work? Um, and yet, you know, that's how it used to be. You know, pre-internet, every computer was completely disconnected, and now that's just so alien. Just the whole concept of being disconnected from the rest of the world and other programmers and users is hard to even imagine to be disconnected like that. That is a honestly like a fascinating origin story because for a lot of folks, and I remember back in a day when the internet was not as common, what you'd even do is you'd find like an internet cafe. You would find a blog post that talks about, say, how to build PHP applications or ASP.NET. And you'd save the page like as HTML to your flash drive. Then you'd come home and insert the flash drive and read the HTML page in your browser because you had no internet, and that's all you have, and then you start encountering an issue, and you're like, oh, where do I go? Well, I guess I have to wait until tomorrow, or I fiddle myself with whatever programming language I'm using until I actually get it running. So it was the, the before times. <laughs> it makes you appreciate what we have now. I do have a question, again, regarding blogging, because you mentioned things like TikTok. You mentioned, obviously, instant services like Discord and Slack. Does blogging carry the same power today as it did, say, in the early 2000s, right? Because back in the day, everyone wanted to have a blog, right? Like you had Coding Core. I know like Scott Hanselman had a blog. There was an MSDN collection of blogs that Microsoft hosted. There were the MSN groups. And people would write long-form content quite a bit. What do you think about that and where it is today? I think uh, it's... uh... A lot of people trace it back to the death of Google Reader, which I think is not really accurate. They want to blame Google for killing off Reader and the whole RSS feeds. But I don't think people really liked curating RSS feeds. I don't think anyone, no one's idea of a good time was having to curate this manual list of RSS feeds. So, gosh, I'm really kind of torn on it. I think there should be lots of great individual writing. And I think there still is, but it's more newslettery than it is bloggy. You know, it's the whole Substack thing. Um, people putting together newsletters is kind of the new blogging, the way that I see it. Um, but I'm very open to blogging. Like, I don't think it's, you know, anything that's particularly difficult to do. It's just you have to have that, again, that commitment to a schedule. You know, how often are you going to write? And stick to your schedule and actually write every week. If you're going to say you're going to write a week, uh, one entry a week, then write an entry a week and keep going from there. So, you know, I in some ways it's changed. In other ways, I think it's kind of the same. I'm thinking back to, gosh, I Mark Fraunfelder, who does work for Boing Boing, recommended 10 like newsletters recently. I've subscribed to all of them, and they're all quite good. They tend to be more gosh, catch all. They basically summarize activity across a number of like venues. Um, but some of them have actual think pieces in them too. You know, the author writing about here's a subject that I'm interested in. I just going to write a little bit about that. So I think this is still very much alive. It's just more newslettery than bloggy is, is the way that I see it. Newsletters are the new blogs. It's interesting because I think the part that the likes of Substack 
button down, like review from Twitter. What they what they solve is precisely what you mentioned is that discoverability problem. Because somebody that like myself, if I want to discover new blogs, I don't think there's a way to do that today. Like where where do you even go to find where people Right. Yeah, I guess, you know, it, you would look at, well, you would go to Substack and look at other authors on Substack. And, but I think you had the same problem back in the, you know, collect RSS feed uh, days. Right. It's like, well, where would you collect RSS feeds? So there's still discoverability issue. Um, and I don't really have a good answer to that. Um, you know, Mark Fraunfelder recommended 10. So that's one way you could do it is just look for other people recommending. But I don't see it as so radically different as as from what it was. I don't think there's just there's still not that many people willing to put in the effort to write every day. So if you can wake up and decide I am one of those people, I'm going to do the work, you know, put in the effort. I'm going to write once a week, once a day. um, It you'll get better at it. You know, like it's like any other form of exercise. You know, you you keep doing it, you gather feedback on it, you improve slightly every week or every day, and then just keep going. And that's kind of how I got started on my blog. It wasn't really that good to start with, but I just kept going and wrote every day. Uh, and then after a while, I wrote every week. And I lately have not been writing at all. <laughs> um, but that's the trick is just pick a schedule and stick to it. And you will get something out of it. I do think it's 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 important and useful exercise. How do you approach feedback on your blog? Gosh, um, early on, I would look at a lot of the the comments, you know, and you'd get some negative comments, but well, most of the people reading kind of want you to succeed because they want to they don't want to feel like they wasted their time by actually reading your blog, right? So they will suggest things that could make your blog better or topics that you could look at. So I, I do think, you know, listening to feedback is, is rather important, uh, especially when you're starting out. And yeah, uh, I, I do think it's, it, it, look at it this way. If you're, if you're going to start out, you're not going to be very good. You have nowhere to go but up, right? So every entry is going to be slightly better than the one before it. Well, and the tricky balance between the feedback you should actually, actually listen to and the feedback that is just, you know, overly negative. Yeah, true. And, you know, people have this human tendency to, you'll get nine positive reactions and one negative reaction, but you'll only remember the one negative reaction, right? Right. This is such a human thing to do. And gosh, I, I don't have a, I can't just say, you know, don't, don't pay attention to the negative. Of course. Stuff. Yeah. Um, but maybe don't internalize it and maybe realize like it's human tendency to inflate the negative and sort of overlook the positive. Just remember that. Remember that your mind will remember that one negative thing, even though it shouldn't. It should remember the nine positive things and put the one negative thing as like an outlier. It's like, well, does that really matter? And then sometimes the negative things, you know, maybe there's a legitimate kernel of a criticism there. You know, it's like, okay, fine. There's a little bit of useful stuff there. I will, on the next entry, I will do slightly better, right? So then you're acknowledging it without letting it control you. Right, right, all right. And especially because... I remember somebody said it on another podcast where they mentioned that feedback is a gift. That no, nobody's obligated to give you any feedback at all, period. So if somebody gives you some feedback on how you can improve or make something better, then, you know, why not? You can, you can parse it out a little bit, which is probably 
again, easier, easier said than done, especially for things that are overly negative. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, gosh, some of the most interesting stuff to write about is, and I write about a lot of this stuff on my blog, is is the way the human mind works, you know, and how code interacts with, you know, human propensities to, uh, gosh, for example, un- unduly weight negative feedback. You know, you'll get one piece of negative feedback and, you know, 10, 20 positive things, and you'll only remember that one negative thing. Being aware of that phenomenon, uh, I think, is really helpful. And, you know, understanding how people work. And a lot of, for example, if you go to my reading list uh, on 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 my blog, it's it's a lot of really classic books that are timeless because they're about how people work. You know, and people don't really change that rapidly. You know, computers do. You know, in 10 years, everything is different, but people are a universal common standard, right? They do not change that rapidly. So the more you can learn about how people work and how to integrate how you work and how your brain works into your life, um, the better off you're going to be. And I hope a lot of my blog entries really cut to the heart of that, of, you know, how people work and the role of software in I'm a huge fan of what I call just-in-time nudges, meaning the software tries to remind you to be the best version of yourself online. And Discourse has a lot of just-in-time reminders in in this vein. Like, for example, one thing is we pop up um, when you start typing your first reply. We pop up a little three-bullet reminder of like, hey, you know, it's great that you're replying. Uh, but just remember, you know, criticize, criticize ideas, not people, you know, and we're here to be to kind to each other, right? Um, and just make sure what you're writing, you know, adds to the conversation and improves the conversation. It's really short. It's like a three bullet list of, you know, reminders of, you know, essentially positivity, basically. Um, you, you can be critical without being negative, right? That is possible. So a lot of the features in discourse uh, and a lot of the thinking that goes into software design of both Stack Overflow and discourse was about trying to encourage people to get positive behaviors. Uh, Another example is on Stack Overflow, everybody forgets this, but a downvote on Stack Overflow costs you one reputation. So every downvote that you cast subtracts a little tiny bit of your score, you know? So if you want to cast a downvote, you can, but it's going to cost you too. So you better really mean it. I like that approach, mainly from the perspective that when folks get overly negative online, that usually is precisely what you called out, is the fact that it costs nothing to be negative, right? Like I can just leave a bad comment or I can downvote somebody on Reddit or any other community without anything happening. But here... And especially in, in the case of Stack Overflow, where reputation is important. Like I've seen people value this, their Stack Overflow reputation more so than they value anything on any other website. Have those nudges, either on Stack Overflow or Discourse, have, have you seen them change the dynamics of a community to foster more healthy interactions? Like, it, it, as is there any correlation between those? Well, yeah, I think you know, nudges is is what you have to work with, you know. And I do think telling people, there's a lot of, I have a blog entry about this, but it talks about, Daniel Pink does a lot of writing about this, about um, 
how you can encourage people to be the best version of themselves by just reminding them, you know, is this really who you want to be at the time you're about to take that action? It, the timing is really so, so important. You know, an ethics class you took four years ago isn't going to help you. Uh, whereas a reminder at the exact time that you might be thinking, oh, maybe I'll just take a little extra for myself because <laughs> uh, I've worked really hard, you know, and I really deserve it. <laughs> uh, that's when you need the reminder to sort of, you know, is that really who you want to be? The person who takes stuff for themselves? Is that is that you? Um, those kind of nudges are, are really quite significant. And there's a ton of places in discourse where we try to say, okay, the user is about to take this current step. They're, they're on the precipice of, you know, writing a reply or doing something. Uh, at that exact moment, that's when you jump in and say, hey, it's great that you're doing this. Um, but just, you know, a, a little reminder of, 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 is this really what you want? Is this really what you want to be? And I have another blog entry talking about how Airbnb did something really great that was about reducing racism and it was about reporting crimes. So part of the software feature to report a potential crime in your neighborhood. Um, well, I'm sorry, this was actually next door. Airbnb had other stuff, but on next door, if you're reporting, you know, a strange person in the neighborhood, they taught you how to write a good police report. It's not, you know, I saw a person of unusual skin color. It's like, well, what were they doing? You know, that was so suspicious. Were they like rifling through people's stuff? Were they just walking down the street? <laughs> what were they doing that was so suspicious? And and not just skin color, but like, what were they wearing? What was their height? You know, what kind of shoes were they wearing? And more importantly, what were they doing? You know, like, what is someone doing that makes you suspicious about them? That's a much better police report. If someone was like, you know, trying to get into cars then yeah, that's completely valid versus, oh, I just saw a strange looking person in my neighborhood and I'm not comfortable with that. It's like, well, that's kind of racist. That's not really a good report of something strange going on in your neighborhood. So the software can kind of educate you by the way it's designed, how to write a really good you know, report of uh, you know, unusual activity. And that's useful. That makes you less racist, actually. Where you're describing is this phenomenon where a lot of folks will say that, well, you know, software is just programmed to do its thing, right? You, you Humans are going to be humans regardless of who's going to be using the software. Software is tasked with doing its thing. But the reality is of what you just said is that you can build software in a way that nudges the better behaviors, the better attitudes to make sure that folks perceive things in a way that is less biased than if you would just kind of throw the software over the wall and say, okay, it's done, go use it. Right. I want to zero in on something that we talked about uh, in terms of kind of your blog, your work on discourse, uh, and of course, Stack Overflow, writing. That seems to be, again, a, a thread to your entire career, that you've been focused on writing, building communities, how important of a skill is writing for engineers? Because you are an engineer yourself and you are a prolific writer. How has that skill helped you in your career? Well, I think it's one of the most essential things 
essential skills that you can have. Gosh, it's it's critically important. And I, even Stack Overflow tricks you into writing, you know, good questions and good answers. You know, there's a lot of editing features. You can go in and edit. I can go in right now and edit a bunch of stuff on Stack Overflow, uh, even without an account. It's all editable, right? So improving someone else's writing is important, even in little ways. And uh, the ability to to communicate to to tell people like why are we building this is so critical right like you got to understand why you're building what you're building like what is it for what purpose does it serve how is it going to work you know what 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 problem is this going to solve for people and being able to explain that to people is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in your career, honestly, because if you can make a really compelling written case for what you're working on, then either you can sell it to customers, uh, you could sell it to your boss, you could sell it to, you know, the powers that be to, to, to get, you know, um, progression in your career. Um, it, it's just the magical key that unlocks so much in your career and you actually see this this can be used negatively right like you can have con men who people who really don't know what they're doing but can just talk talk a storm and occasionally you hear about this right like one of my most famous blog posts uh is fizzbuzz right which is about someone coming into a programming interview and you give them the most basic programming skill test, the FizzBuzz test, which is basically about modulus. Can you do odd even? It's really, really simple. And a bunch of people fail that test. Like they, it's it's like you were hiring truck drivers, and somebody came to the interview and couldn't tell you where the gas pedal was on the truck. It's that shocking, you know. And so there's there's really two sides to this coin. One is you know, being able to com communicate, written communication is, is so important to to unlock uh, your career. It's so powerful. You can actually use it to fake your way into a lot of careers <laughs> um, and fake your way into a lot of stuff. Like if you're just good at telling a really interesting story, you can get away with a lot of stuff that maybe you shouldn't be able to get away with, actually. So let me paint a picture of it that way to illustrate how powerful it is to be able to tell these compelling and interesting stories is you can be basically a con man if you want to. Um, now, I'm not saying you should, but I just want to illustrate that that's the raw power of storytelling. It's, it's so useful as a life skill that you can kind of abuse it to get almost anywhere in life. It's kind of the skeleton key to unlocking, gosh, a really, really prosperous uh, future for yourself. Um, so one of my proudest moments actually is the way that Stack Overflow teaches you fun size units of writing. You know, just write a little question, write a little answer, you know, maybe write a little comment, which improves the answer, improves the question. And slowly over time, the things that get upvoted are clear concise and correct, right? So if you can write something that's really clear, really concise and really correct, you'll get upvotes. And that's the best kind of writing. You know, it was clear, concise and correct. Um, you don't have to write like, you know, 20 paragraphs. You don't have to write a novella. You just have to write 
say three or four paragraphs that are really clear about here's here's how to solve your problem. Here's some really good reasons this is going to work. Here's some trade-offs. You know, here's pros and cons. Here's other approaches that are related. You know, you can make it really thorough and authoritative, right? And that's the kind of stuff that gets upvoted. It's just that really good, solid communication skills. So you're always practicing those skills. And same kind of thing in discourse. You know, every post can be liked and uh, all likes come from other users, you know? So if you can be clear, concise, and interesting, that's that's the name of the game. And that's that's what's rewarded and that's what's upvoted. So there is a feedback loop, basically, that can almost help you select the things that are of importance. But I'm curious, on the other side of the coin that you mentioned, you can be a con man if you can craft a really good story without the underlying substance. How would one go about detecting that? And especially in something like, you know, you mentioned an interview, right? Like you can craft a story that your career is so phenomenal and so great and you know so many things and then you come to the interview. How would you, I want to say like fight against that? You do need to know what you're doing. So one thing that we do at Discourse is we hire people to work on a an audition project. And this is a paid gig. So as part of the interview, we pay you to build something with Discourse. So I'm a huge fan. Now, I know there's questions about this because it's like, well, what if you get another job? How do you make time for, you know, there's a lot of catch-22 here. But I would also argue that say you interview at Google and you go to 10 interviews that are multiple hours each, how are you not getting paid for that, (laughs) right? Like, I don't understand. There's a little bit of disagreement about, you know, whether it's fair to require someone to have a paid project before they can work for you. But I don't know. I think people should get paid even to come into interviews, to be honest. <laughs> so for me, it's like, well, you know, this this is the best way to tell if someone can actually do what they say they can do is give them an actual little project to work on um, and, and have them execute and, and see how it works. Now, this is easier for us because Discourse is open source. So you could go to github.com slash discourse slash discourse. You can go look at all our source code and, you know, you could come up with a little bug fix or some little feature improvement um, on your own, you know, because it's completely open source. So I, I realize for closed source projects, this might be a little more difficult to give someone like an audition project, but I'm a big fan of audition projects as a way of, you know, figuring out culture figuring out skills, figuring out, you know, can this person work on their own? Um, Because we're also an all remote company. So we need people that can kind of get things done by themselves and don't need a lot of, you know, additional outside help. Tell me more about why you made it or why you made a decision to make this audition project uh, a paid uh, offering. Because I fully support that. And I think that this is one of those areas that needs to be improved across the industry where right now there's a lot of companies that do things like take home assignments that are very extensive and like, you know, build us a strategy or a project that does X, but then you're doing unpaid labor for that company and that company can very well reject you and then take your work and run with it. So tell me more about what led you with this course to the decision of saying that we're going to pay folks that interview and do those projects. Well, I, I it's the only way to get really good people and actually have confidence that they can do the work, honestly. Because as we said, like there's really no way of knowing 
you can look at someone's past work, but did they really do it? Um, I don't know. There's just so many variables that to me, an audition project is the only way to tell if someone can actually do the work. Like, I don't know that there's any other alternative. I mean, because if you think about like classic programming interviews, what is it? You come in, you'd have like, gosh, five different interviews with Google. Um, you do a bunch of stuff on the whiteboard that would put you really on the spot. I don't want to put people on the spot. I want to pay them using their tools, their IDEs, you know, their process that they're used to and give them essentially unlimited time and paid time, you know, to, to, to get things done. And it, to me, it's, there's just no other way that, that, that makes sense. Now, again, I realize if you're really busy working at a, a current job, it may be difficult for you to allocate enough time to build something else. But on the other hand, if, if you're, if you're doing a bunch of job interviews, you have one foot out the door already. Um, and honestly, even a discourse, like say you're a discourse and it's not working out, I would fully support you. You know, I don't want you to tell me because that would just be rude. <laughs> uh, but it's, I think it's okay if you want to leave discourse. I would totally understand that you would, you know, take a little vacation time and audition for other companies. That's fine. Because really what I want is for you to be happy. I don't want to force you to work at discourse if it's not working out. I want you to have a career that's fulfilling for you. You know, I don't, I don't, I want that for all of us. So, you know, how do we get that? <laughs> that's an unusual approach because I know a lot of managers would take completely opposite. Like we got, we got to figure out a way to either keep them in the company or, you know, if they're one foot out the door, like let's figure out how to quickly replace them. And here you are saying that, you know what, that's okay. Well, yeah. I mean, if it's not working out, you know, it's ultimately, I, I, if you're at discourse, then I already like you. Once you've made it in, you've made the cut, like you're, you're a good person. Um, so I'll definitely miss you. <laughs> in fact, we had someone quit the other day. Unfortunately, it was just their life was, there was a lot going on. Um, it wasn't really totally work-related. It was just unfortunate and unlucky, but I have tremendous respect for this person and I think they're amazing. And, you know, I, I view discourse as a place for you to learn and hone your skills and become really, really talented. Maybe one day you will launch a company, right? Um, I would support that. I, I want everybody to find what they need. You know, like I view myself at discourse as, as chief happiness officer. I just want everyone to work on stuff that they find fun and engaging. I want to change our little corner of the world. I want to strike back at Facebook. I, you know, I want there to be thousands of discourses, millions of discourses, not one giant monolithic Facebook that owns the entire world. Right. I want places where you have you know, nice reason discussions that are paragraph based that you can learn from that are searchable. That's not just all chat, you know, that's all disposable. So, you know, I believe in our mission and I, I want people that work at discourse to believe in it as well. And, um, you know, that's why I get up in the morning, you know, is, is to, you know, make the world a little tiny bit better. Um, and and improve some of the things that are not working so well right now out there, you know? Like there was that article recently that came out that showed that Instagram was this huge negative influence on young women because of the obvious 
influence of being so appearance focused, right? It's, it's a site that's all about pictures, right? It makes sense. Um, I want to be a counterbalancing force and saying, look, you know, discourse isn't about how you look. It's about how well you can communicate. And, you know, is it fun to communicate with other people? Is it fun to learn? Um, is it interesting to have a more nuanced opinion when you have a deeper understanding of the things you're discussing, right? The purpose of discussion is to learn. Now, you may not change your mind, but hopefully over time you have a more nuanced opinion. You know, some problems are very complicated. There's a lot to the world. And I love people sharing their personal experiences, right? To me, that's the value. It's not, hey, here's some talking points about this political issue. It's more like, no, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you about me and my mom, you know, and the relationship that we had and how it relates to this issue, right? Those stories are so powerful and so, you know, human and, and so interesting. And, and that cuts to the heart of, of what we want to do at discourse. You know, we want actual human connection. You know, I don't want the howling of wolves. I don't want everybody just yelling at each other about how wrong they are about everything. Everything is so polarized now, you know, it's just us versus them. And to the extent that we can diffuse that a little bit with discourse and say, look, you know, we may not agree on everything, but you know, we all love our dogs and cats. We love our children. You know, we want a future for the world. We want a future for our kids. And we should all be able to work together on that. You know, and I I just want a path forward. And to the extent that discourse can be a part of that, however small, you know, I'm really proud to get up every day and, and work on it. And of course, it's open source, right? It doesn't cost anything. Anyone can set it up and run it and uh, have it be sustainable. And hopefully now with this chat tool we're building in, it's sustainable at smaller sizes now too. Like two or three people could use discourse and have a better experience because of the built-in chat functionality that we're going to be delivering by the end of the year. What was the driving force that instilled in you this principled take on building communities? Because when you call out Facebook, Instagram, you're calling out this kind of profit-driven conversation, right? Like you promote things that happen to generate revenue, right? And this is where if we are looking at the existing conversation on those platforms, it's skewed towards either things, as you mentioned, very polarizing or things like advertisements. In this case, you're taking control back and kind of taking the pendulum on the other end and saying, you know what? This is not right. I want to do a different thing. What started this and saying, you know what, I'm going to do business the right way? Well, I think it's a question of creating the internet that you want, you know, like looking, waking up, getting up and looking around you and saying, I want to build a better mousetrap. You know, I want to build something that represents an alternative for people. You know, you can't just say, everything sucks, right? Like, okay, you got to do something about it. And for me, this is that. This is me doing something about uh, the idea that I don't want there to be only Facebook. I mean, Facebook serves a function. It's useful. But you also need alternatives to Facebook. You need diversity. You need, like, 
a lot of different choices for community. It can't be everything belongs to Mark Zuckerberg. That's just not healthy for the world. And communities need to belong to themselves to really survive. You know, so with discourse, you can say, look, we're giving you the code. You can take the code and you can run with it and you can have it forever. And it belongs to you and it belongs to your community. And you will survive indefinitely because we can't pull the rug out from under you. We can't take the software away from you at any point. And it's great because open source, you know, that's like a selling point is it's like an insurance contract. If you, you know, you have a hosting contract with us. That's how we make money at Discourse. We do hosting. Um, at any point, you can you can take the software and say, you know what? I'd rather just host it myself. You're not beholden to us. We cannot hold you hostage. We cannot hold your data hostage. And built into Discourse, if you go to your user preferences, you can export all your posts on any Discourse that you are a member of right now today. Go to your user profile. There's an export button. And you can download all your data, right? Because it belongs to you. Like if you participated for several years on this community, made thousands of posts, you can press download and get all your data back, right? So we're kind of building the world that we want to see, you know, that it's open source, it's friendly. Um, it kind of reminds you to be the best version of yourself. It also has a light layer of task management on top of it. There's scheduling tools, there's date tools, there's reminder tools. Um, it's a great tool for getting things done, uh, but also conversationally. It's a conversational view of the world that in order to solve a problem, you need to be able to tell a story about it. And in order to have an interesting a project, you must be able to tell an interesting story about that project. And I love all the discourses that I participate on. You know, I think they're, some of them are so, so interesting, right? Like I just, I love these communities and I want to give them really beautiful software that has all the, the best amenities like two-factor authentication, right? Um, it, it runs great on mobile. You don't need a special app or anything. You know, it's got all this cutting edge functionality that makes it competitive with Twitter, with Facebook, um, but it's open source and free, you know? So I, I just want to build the world that I want to see. And, and that's literally why we started with Discourse, because when I came out of Stack Overflow, I figured, I was like, oh, forum software has probably improved since I looked, because I stopped looking at forum software because Stack Overflow is Q&A, and that's not really forum. It's actually kind of rather a different thing. So I came out of Stack Overflow in 2012. I looked at forum software thinking, oh, it's it, surely it's gotten better since 2008. And it really had not at all. I was like, wow, this is depressing. Like there's just nothing good for people to install, to talk to their customers, to talk to their users, to talk to their friends. Uh, I mean, yeah, you could just do WhatsApp, right? That's fine. But if you want an actual community, a place to go that's structured, um, there was just nothing, nothing that I was comfortable installing. It was all kind of like embarrassingly bad software that would just make you feel like you were, you know, you'd step back in time 15 years. So yeah, that's the goal with this course. Just give, give, give people something really nice, uh, modern amenities, open source, and it's constantly helping you 
have a friendly, healthy community. That's the goal. I'm curious how you're approaching the business side of things, because it's like you said, it's an open source project and you employ and hire people to work on it and you raise Series A, like you mentioned earlier in the show. And there's this misconception today that you can't really make money out of open source. What's your take on that? Well, you definitely can. It's all hosting. I mean, if you look at if you go to discourse.org, our website, you'll see there's, you know, the traditional three tier hosting plan. $100 a month, $300 a month, and then Enterprise, which is Ask Us for, for pricing, um, but, but also free. There's ways to, you could have somebody install Discourse for you for, I think it's like $150. bucks. they will install Discourse, get you all set up, and then it's only like 5 bucks a month uh, for the hardware, the server time rental, right? Um, so that's, that is how we make money, is through hosting. That's pretty much it. We do a tiny bit of consulting, but we don't want to be a consulting business. Um, we are happy to help our customers, you know, customize this course, build plugins, things like that. But we also want there to be an ecosystem, kind of like the ecosystem around WordPress, where there's a lot of people invested in, you know, building things on top of WordPress. We want there to be a really healthy community of people building things on top of discourse as well. I love that. So essentially, it's not only... Well, and probably that's the wrong way of saying it. it is not about data lock-in where you can say you're only on our platform, but it's more of we are offering you the convenience of the tool by hosting because then you remove the headache completely from somebody that wants to ha have a community. But you still retain that freedom of saying, but if you do want to do it yourself, you can. It's just that you're taking on the responsibility of maintaining it and updating it, redeploying it and managing availability and things like that. Yes, exactly. So there's a little bit of a trade-off there. And, and we have guides. It's not terribly difficult. Um, setting up discourse is like, honestly, the most difficult thing with discourse is email because email is just fundamentally, you know, there's been so much spam basically that setting up email is kind of an adventure. But once you get email set up, and we have guides for this, um, and there's very, very few places you can go to get free email these days. It's very, very locked down um, because of, again, spammers. Um, but once you take email off the plate, it's it's not difficult to set up discourse. Uh, we want the project to be easy to understand. It needs, in, in order for it to work, it needs to be easy to set up. If nobody can set it up, you're kind of dead in the water, right? Right. No, absolutely. Wow. Time flew by uh, talking to you, Jeff. And uh, I'll ask one question that... I ask of my guests, one unconventional thing that you'd recommend somebody that is hearing this show, they're listening to you and saying, wow, I want to do things the way Jeff does it. What's your unconventional advice that you would not necessarily find on blogs to this person about their career uh, or how they can follow in your footsteps? Well, I would say two pieces of advice. Uh, first is... I've alluded to this many times, is set a schedule and stick to it. If you want to get better at something, whatever that thing is, uh, set a schedule to do it and stick to it. It's really, really that simple. And I mean over years. I'm talking, you know, years of commitment of every day or every week. Really, really stick to it. Uh, and the other piece I'll add to that is I've also written a blog post called Three Things, which is I'm not a big list maker. Like, I don't believe in... I like research notebooks. 
Um, but I don't like lists of things that I must do. Like I just feel like the weight of those lists is just overwhelming. I, I feel like you should be able to, for any, for any, any given day, there should be three things that you're going to do that day, right? Just three things. And all you got to do is hit those three things. And that's it, right? And you should be able to keep that list in your head, those three things for, for any given day. Um, just pick the most important three things and make sure you do those three things. But don't overthink it. Don't come up with giant lists of you know 25 things you have to do. Just what three things are you going to do today? And try to get them done. That's it. For example, today, today this is one of the things, right? I need, I need to do this. <laughs> I'm honored that it made the list and made the cut. <laughs> there you go. That's right. This is something that I wanted to do. It was an interesting opportunity and, you know, a fun conversation. So yeah, I'm happy we did it. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. And I know typically I ask folks, where can they find you online? So I'll make this a two-part question then. One, where can folks find you online if they have not found you yet? And the second one, what are your... Uh, let's do like two favorite discourse communities that you'd recommend folks check out. Uh, sure. You can find me online at, you know, codinghorror.com or discourse.org. And as far as the two sites, uh, I'll selfishly talk about meta. Um, so meta.discourse.org is where we build discourse. It's where you talk to us about discourse, the product, you know, whether you're a customer um, or a free open source install. And there's a lot of conversations there that are really interesting about product development and why we build things that we build them and a bunch of support stuff. So it's us using discourse to build discourse. So I'll recommend that one just from a tooling perspective, since a lot of people listening are developers, you know, it's like, what can you learn from your community and building your product? I think there's a lot. So meta is an example of that meta.discourse.org. And then as far as communities, I'm going to go with the longest running one, which is uh, boing boing, uh, bbs.boingboing.org. That's the longest running discourse. It's been around since uh, 2013 and still going. And Boing Boing is a really interesting, fun site. And it's just a good example of discourse in the wild. Very mature. So those two. I love the nod to BBS in the URL. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a fun group of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends how you define BBS. Um, it is a bulletin board. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. This has been phenomenal. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope it's useful to people and, you know, feel free to, you know, definitely take a look at discourse and we're always looking for feedback on that. So absolutely don't hesitate if you're interested. It's discourse.org. That's right.